Our God does reign. Amen. Amen. And he gave us his word. He told us what he would do. That he will reign. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now my Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nations. To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from the book of Psalms, chapter 41 through 11. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
a tradition to always stand in the presence of kings. And here we will see one speak. So brothers and sisters, please stand to hear the good news of Jesus the Messiah. Today's reading is from the Gospel according to John. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Please be seated. We are in, as mentioned, the second Sunday of Epiphany. The uh, ever since creation, God has put in time a rhythm that even if you don't believe, uh, the world still follows. We have a, a weekly rhythm. And the whole world has a weekly rhythm. Have you noticed that? Do you know that the French tried to change that once? Are there any French here? My apologies, I'm not having a go at you or anything. It's just that Napoleon thought it'd be a really good idea if we had a 10-day work week. Guess how long that lasted? About 10 days. There's a rhythm to things. There's a rhythm in prayer. There's a rhythm in the cycle of reading Bible. There's a rhythm in the church life. And for those that might not be familiar with Epiphany, Epiphany is the season in between the season of Christmas. Yes, Christmas is a season. It's not just, not just a day. And then, it come, then Lent, in that middle in between, is Epiphany, which talks about the, uh, the manifestation or the revealing of Jesus to the world. And it kicks off with um, a special day called Epiphany. 
This, this sermon's rocket science, can't you tell? The kings come, or the magi come, and, they are, and, they re- and Jesus is revealed to Gentiles and to the world. And then we have a season, and in the rhythm, it always starts with the baptism of Jesus, where the Holy Spirit comes down on him, and uh, you get the voice from heaven, and it ends with the transfiguration just before Lent, where once again, you get the voice from heaven. Keeps this, keeps this rhythm going. Now, in the Gospel of John, there isn't <clears throat> a, a narrative of the baptism. There is in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in, in, in John's Gospel, he alludes to the baptism of Jesus, where he says, this is the one that I saw the Spirit of God coming down on. Now, looking at our text the portion of scripture that's for us to study. You get this interesting phrase in, uh, in John's gospel, the next day. It's always the next day. Okay? I'm never really sure what the day before was, but it is the next day. And we, 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 we get into a rhythm of saying stuff like that. Like whenever I get questioned, when's the Messiah coming? I always say, sometime next week. And they go, really? Do you know? Yep. And it's going to be a Wednesday at two o'clock. It's to avoid the traffic. Okay, he's the Messiah. He's pretty smart. The next day, whatever the next day refers, <clears throat> John is doing his calling. He's uh, out there preaching up a storm. Israel is repenting and getting ready. They're filled with expectation that the Messiah isn't too far away. And then when John sees Jesus, his cousin... He says something incredible. He says, there, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, if you get your commentaries, you usually have a little look down the bottom and it'll say things like, um, uh, John is making a reference to Passover. This is the Passover lamb. How does he know that? And uh, what's confusing is, He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Except that Passover is not for sin. What's Passover for? Correct. The the angel of death will pass over a household. Right? It's It's not a lamb for every individual. It's a lamb for the household and anybody in that household. So we often think of you know, Passover as a, is a, Jesus is the Passover lamb, sure. But let's remember that Passover in and of itself is, uh, is not for sin. We probably should also note in the Gospels that uh, at Passover, Jesus makes no reference to lamb. Here we have the Passover meal. Jesus could have easily stood up and said, see the cup of wine? That's my blood. You see the lamb that you're all munching on? That's me. Okay. But uh, he doesn't. What does he, what does he pick up? Bread. Why would he do such a thing? Probably because at the time of Jesus, most people had no access to Passover lambs. So you've got a pretty specific commandment in the Bible. Where are you supposed to actually sacrifice your Passover lambs? In the temple. 
That's the only place you're allowed to offer Passover lambs. What happens if you're living in Athens? Or if you're living in Rome? Or if you've been in Babylon for a thousand years? Or if you're in Alexandria? You can't. So actually, at the time of Jesus, most people didn't actually eat lamb. Guess what everybody had access to? Mm. And so these become very significant in the Second Temple period. So I'm going to show a couple of <coughs> pictures. First one. Okay. Now, this, at this point, I will um, make our apologies. I know it's a Protestant church, but I'm about to show you an icon. And then, and then I'm going to talk about a statue. And you'll all be going, oh my gosh, this church is schizophrenic. It's Protestant, it's Catholic, it's Orthodox. Okay. What I like about um, uh, these different traditions is I, I learned some things being here. I've been here 24 years. Has anybody been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? Yeah, okay. Well, as a good little Protestant, my first reaction in 1998, that's when I walked into that church, was something that went like this. <laughs> So was that, you're familiar with it, that sort of reaction, are you? Yeah. Um, but I've actually learnt in my studies, uh, in Jewish studies, is that you worship God with all of your senses. You worship him not just by hearing, not just by singing, but you also worship by taste and touch and smell and sight. You worship him with all of your senses. And unfortunately, in the Protestant tradition, we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. So, here we have a picture of the Lamb of God. Because I'd like to ask the question, how does John the Baptist know to say to Jesus, that's the Lamb of God? He's going to say that twice in our passage today. That's the Lamb of God. And um, none of the disciples who go, really? What's the Lamb of God thing? I mean, the guy's going to tell us he's a door and he's uh, the shepherd, he's all kinds of things. But what's the Lamb of God? And uh, often in stained glass windows, you get this picture of this conquering lamb. This is uh, the, the Lamb Invictus. And he has the, uh, the, the flag um, of St. George, conveniently. <laughs> and uh, he's um, got a really firm, stern look on his face, hasn't he? Because, you know, he's, he's conquered, he's won. And then, then there's the cross that's there. And that's usually the image when we think of the term the Lamb of God, that's the thing that pops up. The next image is a Greek icon. <clears throat> and this icon is called the Lamb of God. And there's uh, John the Baptist, who's dressed in his camel skin and stuff, saying, behold, the Lamb of God. And he's pointing to Jesus, who looks remarkably like a human. And, uh, and that is, so when you look at Greek iconography, that's the Lamb of God. What are they meaning? We often, we want to go back to the Lamb idea. We don't, don't put that one up yet. Because, uh, you know, we, we say Lamb of God and we think actually small fuzzy sheep. And uh, when we think Holy Spirit, we all think bird, right? And I'm sure the Holy Spirit is really annoyed at that, okay? You know, it's like I've been a bird for the last 2,000 years. 
And I'm, I, it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm having a really hard time saving rednecks. Okay? And there I'm descending on them, and they're like, oh, spirit bird. Okay? Really difficult to save them. But uh, these are, what we really should do is we, we don't want to read the Bible 2,000 years since the, 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 the culture that it, was, that it was written in. We, we don't want to take our present-day culture and superimpose it back on the Bible. We want the Second Temple period to speak to us. And so here's the question. How does John know to say the Lamb of God? Where does that come from? And when we talk about the Bible, we often say this, this is the Holy Bible. Now, why do we call it the Holy Bible? It's got the title on the side there. But if you were Jewish, say, what are the scriptures? And they would say they're divine language. It's the word of God. It's divine. And if, if it is that, then every single word here has to be purposeful. God doesn't say anything superfluously. So the words that are here are there deliberately. In fact, the sounds that they make are deliberate. There are certain words that uh, when you read the Bible, you think, that's a funny word to be saying there. You really probably should say it like this. But the sound that that word makes when you hear it makes you want to uh, ask a question. And in Jewish tradition, you're closer to God when you're asking questions than when you think you have the answers. And so uh, in Jewish tradition, when you read the Bible, the sounds that the words make are important, and so do the sounds of the words that are not there. What did I just say? The words that are not in the Bible are just as important as the words that are there. So I want to go draw your attention now to this guy, which is um, uh, an image or a form of the Akidah, the binding of Isaac. And this term, the, la the Lamb of God, actually resonates here. As David mentioned in last week's sermon, the, the story of Genesis 22 is the first time that the word love appears in the Bible. And so when words first appear, that, that context of those first words become really, really important. And, uh, and so love is always connected to sacrifice. Love is not something you get and keep. Love is something you give and you keep giving. And, uh, and so you know the story. You're familiar with it. Um, Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain. And again, David reminded us that Isaac, uh, even though this little guy is small, uh, the actual Bible doesn't give you his age, although the, it seems that he's 37. Because uh, when uh, Isaac is born, Sarah is 90. And as soon as the, they do the, the Akidah, the very next thing that happens is Sarah dies and she's 127. Ergo, he's, he's 37. And uh, so it's a, it's a story of two guys being incredibly obedient. And um, as, you can, as, as they're going up the mountain, then uh, uh, Isaac is going to turn to his father and he's going to ask a question. And in the ancient world, you didn't read the Bible. Why didn't you read the Bible? 
they didn't have one. You had lots of scrolls, and they were incredibly valuable, and you didn't have your own personal one unless you were really rich. So you actually would gather in a community and someone would be appointed to read the text to you. So you didn't read it, you heard it. Or as Paul says in Romans, faith comes by hearing. And so Abraham, uh, Isaac uh, looks at dad, this is the paraphrased version, and says, I see the fire, I see the knife, and uh, I'm carrying the wood, but where is the sacrifice? And the word that he uses is olah. Where's the olah? And um, the, the, which, is, which is a burnt offering in, in Leviticus. The olah is the, is the offering that, that is completely consumed on the altar. Every other offering is actually divided up. Right? You actually give a bit for the, the altar that goes to God, there's a bit for the priest, and you get to eat the rest. Right? You eat your own sacrifice. Hmm, interesting. And so Abraham responds to the question. He says, God will provide a lamb, a say. And then he binds him up, and, uh, and then you get this angelic intervention where the angel says, don't kill your son. Interestingly, in the text, he says, don't kill your son twice. Now remember, nothing in the Bible is superfluous. And so when you hear, don't kill your son, don't kill your son, why would the angel come down and say, don't kill your son twice? It could be that Abraham, really old. <laughs> He's just... And uh, it's very interesting that actually in the Bible, Abraham is the first person to actually be old. Abraham, who's Ken? Abraham became old. He's the first person ever to get old. Okay? Uh, Jacob's the first person ever to get ill. Right? There's a few other little firsts that, that run around. Um, Abraham's the first person ever to get called a prophet and all kinds of interesting things. Uh, but anyway, maybe, maybe he is a little bit you know, tone deaf and he's like, you know, don't kill your son. What? Um, but there's also the tradition, and it's just a tradition. Okay, I'm going to use a midrash. And what's a midrash? Yes, a, a, a midrash is a story that's not true, but tells a truth. Okay, those are called sermons. <laughs> and in the midrash, it says that Abraham actually kills Isaac. Why did he do that? Because God told him to. But did God want him to kill Isaac? No. So what did God do? Resurrected him. So what did Abraham do? Tried to kill him again. Because God told him, kill your son. Oh, that shouldn't have happened. Okay. It, the text doesn't say that Abraham died. That's not what I'm saying. The Midrash is saying that the text gives this question. Why say, don't kill your son twice? So the lamb resurrects. And you get two advents of this lamb. It also begin to, begins to birth the two messiah theory. In, in Jewish tradition, late Second Temple period, there were two messiahs, Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, the son of Joseph, and Mashiach ben David, the conquering messiah, because they read the text. 
they were sort of kind of a bit, bit strange going, there's, there seems to be a, an all-powerful conquering king and there seems to be this other guy who doesn't do so well, who suffers. And they couldn't put them together, so it was much easier to say, well, this is two of them. So you get this interesting question. What is Abraham doing? He ties up his son. Angel tells him to stop. He looks up and he sees a ram, an aeel. But God said, Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. But then he didn't. And so since the Akedah, we've been waiting for the Lamb of God. Which is an interesting thing because the Lamb might die. But it's not supposed to die. It'll resurrect. And so you get a lot of these themes are all in the Second Temple period. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, that, that's the Lamb of God. And how did, the, how did the disciples respond? John's disciples, Jesus hasn't got any yet. Well, have a look. Andrew goes to find Simon. Now, Andrew, standing next to John. John's preaching up a storm. Andrew's probably assisting him. John sees Jesus. That's the Lamb of God. And, uh, and Andrew turns around to Simon and says, we found the Messiah. First time Jesus has called the Messiah is right here. He hasn't done anything. There's been no demon slaying. He hasn't turned water into wine. That's the next chapter. He hasn't called his disciples. But he's the Messiah already. Because of this. Because of what they've heard and what they haven't heard. So now John says that is the Lamb of God. And he will take away the sins of the world. Now, where did they get that linking together? Well, obviously, Passover, as we mentioned, is not for sin. What's the, what's the sacrifice for sin? Most, actually nearly all sacrifices in the Bible, in Leviticus, best book of the Bible, by the way, uh, is, um, uh, is for unintentional sin. What? You can't kill somebody, murder somebody, and then run and kill a goat and say, me and God are good. It's not the way it works. I can't steal your car, sacrifice a goat, and have no consequences. That's not the way Leviticus works. Okay, sacrifices are for unintentional sins. But if you do something intentional, how do you get forgiven? Repent. Pay back. I steal your car, I better give it back. And interest. That's the way it works. But there is one sacrifice for sin. And it's the Yom Kippur sacrifice. And it's an interesting sacrifice because it doesn't die. It's part of the irony of the whole thing, isn't it? The, in Leviticus, the high priest puts his hands on the, on the goat and he confesses all the sins of Israel. Every single one onto that goat. And then they take the goat away. The goat takes away the sins of the world. Now, who sees that event? Let's just pretend you and I are Israelites and we're sitting at the back of the camp. We don't hear the priest say a prayer. We don't even see the priest at all. Certainly don't see the lamb. We don't see it get taken away. But we know that it happens. And that is exactly the same sort of theology that you see happening in the New Testament. 
Is Jesus in heaven interceding for us now? Has anyone heard him do that? But you believe it, don't you? And you know he's doing it. Praise the Lord. Okay? That same sort of theology is here. And so what they've done in the second temple period is they've, those, they've merged these, these, these uh, sacrifices together. And the Lamb of God will indeed take away the sins of the world, even if you don't see it. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. It wasn't that I read the New Testament and then Jesus went, right, I'm ready, and then he hopped on a cross. Already happened. And it was absolutely fantastic. And as we see in our, the, the readings that are wrapped around this event, Isaiah 49 discusses this, this servant, the chosen one. And in the text, this chosen one is even known by God while in the womb. And then there's this interesting switch where in verses 3 and 4, Israel, the nation, is the servant and chosen one. And it is. Israel was called by God while he was still in Abraham's loins and said, you will be a blessing until the earth. And, and Isaiah 49, 6 says, you will take my light to the Gentiles. That has been the call of Israel, and that call has not changed. As Paul says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And so there's still a calling on this nation to be a light to the Gentiles. And us too, called while in our mother's wombs to be a light and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Are you ready to do it? hope so. And then we're not doing this by ourselves. We are together, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then we have a look at our psalm. Now, I love the psalms. Psalms are uh, they're prayers, and prayers really tell you your theology. Right? You, you know your theology by how you pray. If every one of your prayers is, please, Lord, give me a Tesla, um, Where's your heart? Okay, we should be listening to our own prayers and the prayers of each other. And so here's, here's a prayer where David, we don't know when David is writing this psalm. He's in some sort of trouble. He calls out for help, and then he waits patiently. And uh, this is a psalm uh, which is very rarely uh, able to be applied in today's world because none of us want to have patience anymore. Right? In Hebrew, you say, there's no, absolutely no patience in this country at all. Okay? But our whole culture is the same. We are addicted to instant information, you know, St. Google and uh, St. Wikipedia, patron saints of misinformation. Can, uh, they'll give us that misinformation instantly. And when we pray, we want the answer now. But David says, I called and I waited patiently. And what did I actually delight in? Verse 8, I delighted in your will and your law was on my heart. That's where the Torah is meant to be. That is exactly where it has always meant to be. Moses says, write these laws where? On your heart. And then you teach them to your children. Right? You don't 
You, you don't take your little son or your daughter to the nearest rabbi or priest and say, hey, make him a good believer in, in Jesus. It's, it's our job. And uh, in the text, we actually see that um, they, they, they get this understanding. He's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Rabbi, where are you staying? Okay, Jesus called a rabbi for the first time. Uh, at the time of Jesus, rabbis are actually beginning to appear. Notice that in the Gospels, Jesus actually doesn't talk to any other rabbis. And when Paul is running around uh, uh, Greece in the book of Acts, he doesn't meet one rabbi. Okay, they're, they're, they're at the cusp of it. The, the rabbinical movement is just beginning. John the Baptist is not called a rabbi. Uh, Jesus is. He's the, the teacher. So let him teach us. And what should be our desire as we understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? To sit down and just go, great? No. Our desire is to do his will, which is to take the light to the world. And our culture doesn't like us speaking back to it. But that's what the psalm says. I will proclaim your righteousness. I will proclaim your deeds of salvation. I will proclaim your, your faithfulness for generations. And I'll be patient in the answer. And we have to have that same courage, brothers and sisters. Because this world that we, we live in, it, it has absolutely no patience. It certainly doesn't want us to speak to it. It wants to talk to us. But it has no truth to tell us. It doesn't even know what the truth is anymore. Brothers and sisters... We have seen through, through our text that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an incredible message that we have to share. We have found the Messiah. So brothers and sisters, what is your desire? Hopefully to do the will of God. We have a call to be the lights of the nations. Answer it. And let's speak to our culture. There really needs us to. Because it's lost the truth. But in the end, let's be patient, like David. God will have his way. Brothers and sisters, shalom. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.